Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. As I explained in the first episode, Israel is a parliamentary democracy. The Knesset, Israel's parliament, has the Euro sovereignty as Israel's legislative branch and holds the power over the government. The Knesset has many authorities. The first one, of course, is approve the cabinet, which means the government. Elect the president and state controller and remove them from office, and pass any law by a simple majority, even one that might conflict with the basic laws of Israel. It seems that under the new speaker, former minister Yariv Levin of the Likud party, the Knesset has decided to waive its supremacy over the government. Under the cover of the corona crisis in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, is promoting a law that will allow the government to make decisions and to put the people under restrictions without the need of legislation. The law will allow the government to declare a state of emergency, put people under curfew, and to stop public transportation. In order to better explain the law and its implications, I have a special guest today. Roy Peled is a visiting professor at the Center for Jewish Law and Israel Studies at UC Berkeley Law School, where he delivers courses on minority rights in Israel and the Israeli constitutional law. Peled is an associate professor of constitutional and administrative law at the College of Management in Israel, an adjunct professor at the Hebrew University. He also taught at the Columbia Law School in New York between 2011 to 2013. Prior to his academic career, Peled was the executive director and later chairperson of the Movement for Freedom of Information in Israel, as well as an assistant to a minister in the Barak government and head of the political department of the National Kibbutz Movement. Peled has published articles in leading U.S. law journals and is a frequent op-ed writer for various news outlets in Israel, including Haaretz. I want to thank you, Roy, for joining us today. I will hand the mic to you to tell us a bit more about the Corona Law. Well, uh, I think I'll start by toning down and then toning up the, the uh, you know, alarm bells on this. Um, because when you look at the details at first sight, it may be a, li- a bit less alarming than, than what the headlines in some of the newspapers are. Because we need to remember that the law does say that within a week, Of announcement of any coronavirus related government measures, the Parliament does have to actually uh, affirm them. So technically, if let's say a government uh, the government, as you mentioned, decides to enact a lockdown tomorrow, it has seven days 
to submit those to the Knesset for confirmation. And within three more days, the Knesset can either strike it down or uphold it. So in that sense, a lot of people now are saying, okay, you know, you're, you're just uh, making too much of it. It's not uh, as bad as it may seem. Uh, to that, I want to make two comments. One, there are a lot of bills passed in the past, hmm, maybe five years, maybe already a little more, that taken each on its own merits don't seem as bad as maybe some people claim. But you have to zoom out and look at the greater picture. And when you zoom out and look at the greater picture, you see how all of these together create a puzzle of a very worrying scene of Israeli democracy. So it's not just what this bill itself says, but it's sort of how it fits into the greater picture of what's going on in the um, level of, I'd say, authoritarianism of the government in Israel. The other comment that is important here is that this legislation is specifically intended to bypass previous precedents of the Supreme Court. If I may, a bit of history here. Of course. Uh, I think it's warranted, and I think it might also be interesting. So Israel is in a state of emergency. It's not in a state of emergency since mid-March because of COVID-19. And it's not in a state of emergency because of first, second, or third intifada or wars or whatever. Israel is actually in a state of emergency since its war of independence. So in 1948, the government enacted a state of emergency, and it was never, never canceled. Until 1999, by the way, it was just an ongoing thing. They just declared a state of emergency and never ended it. In 1999, under the Barak government, Justice Minister Balin passed a law saying that Knesset has to renew the state of emergency every year, but that hasn't been much of a hurdle, right? It just automatically renews the state of emergency since then every year. Under this state of emergency, the government can legislate emergency regulations. So it basically can do almost anything it wants other than disproportionately breach human, violate human rights, but it can enact regulations, ordinances for three months that are basically as strong or even stronger than Knesset legislation because they can overcome Knesset legislation. If the Knesset says, let's say, that every employee has the right for a day off, you know, a week, the government can come and say, no, for the next three months, they don't. And that will be stronger than the Knesset legislation. So at some point in the year 2000, in the year, sorry, 1990, the Supreme Court said, okay, look, guys, this is a very strong power. You can't just do whatever you want with it, but you can only enact emergency regulations where the Knesset cannot act on itself. So what the Supreme Court said, this isn't a Knesset, you know, bypassing authority. This doesn't mean that the government can just decide any day of the week that it wants to set aside the Knesset and do what it wants. This is a power to be used only in, in emergency cases where the nature of the emergency is such that the Knesset itself cannot do what's needed. If we're going back right to the War of Independence, right, there was a blockade on Jerusalem. You just couldn't bring the Knesset members to Jerusalem. But you might even think, you know, of an earthquake, of an actual real war where the, you know, it's just too dangerous to convene the Knesset. In all those cases, the Supreme Court said, okay, that's when the government can enact emergency regulations, but not just because it doesn't feel like going to the Knesset. Now, COVID-19 
started as a very similar scenario, right? Because there was an absolute lockdown. No one wanted to, you know, bringing the Knesset together isn't just bringing 120 Knesset members. You know that. You've been there a lot. It's a whole operation, right? You need to bring hundreds of people to operate the Knesset. And when the lockdown began, on the one hand, the Knesset didn't want to get all this operation going. And on the other hand, it was clear that some legislation needs to pass quickly, pronto, to stop the spreading of the virus. And, and that was a very clear case of a need to use the government's power for emergency regulation. But now, fast forward four months, the Knesset is there and it meets on a regular basis and it can uh, you know, carry out all its tasks. And when need be, it can even legislate very quickly. I happened to uh, yesterday go over some history of speed legislations in the Knesset. There were more than 25 laws along the years, which the Knesset passed in 24 hours. So it's not even that the Knesset, you know, is such a necessarily a cumbersome and um, problematic process of legislation. The Knesset can work fast if need be. So at this point, the Supreme Court said a few weeks ago already, you need to go back to the Knesset and you need to legislate all these extreme measures that you, government, feel are needed. And the government just saw that as an inconvenience. And it's not just an inconvenience. Actually, this needs to be said, right? You said it, I think, uh, as you described to me the earlier episode of your podcast, the government has support in the Knesset, right? The Knesset, uh, you just said it in your introduction. The Knesset is the one that sets up the government. It's not a political matter in the sense that the government fears that its uh, measures won't pass the Knesset. They have a majority in the Knesset. It's just the whole public process of convening a committee to discuss this, bringing in experts, bringing in civil society to voice you know, what it has to say, having journalists around the table, as they do in the Knesset, in the Knesset committees. That's the process they want to avoid. It's, of course, it takes a while. A, a government decision can be taken in 10 minutes in a conference call, and the Knesset might take 24 hours, as I said. But what troubles them more is the openness of the process. It's the criticism right. that arises. The supervision, from. I would say. And all that is exactly what the Knesset is supposed to do, supervision right. on the government, on right? The... Raising questions, uh, asking, you know, is all of this necessary? Or maybe we can do with just 80% of the measures you're proposing. Maybe we can have uh, checks and balances within the, the measures themselves that you're proposing. I'll give you a very simple example from the last few days. As you know, the Shabak, the General Security Service, have The Shin Bet, as it's called here in the U.S. <laughs> the Shin Bet, right. I think Shimon Peres loved saying that. The yeah. Shin Bet. They have been given authority and actually have been asked to run this whole apparatus of monitoring citizens' movement. Right. Now, the way it works in Israel now is that you can just, you know, be at the comfort of your home or walking about the street and suddenly you get a text message saying, hey, ho, the Shabak uh, found out that you've been near a uh, COVID-19 um, patient or someone bearing COVID-19 yeah. and you need to go into self-quarantine. Now, surprisingly enough, there have been mistakes. There have been people getting these messages that right. say they've been in places they've never been to or they, you know, at times they, they never were there. And then comes the question, do I just have to go into self-quarantine for 14 days because I have this text message? Or is there someone I can call and appeal and say, hey, you've got it wrong? 
That's the kind of things that come up in the Knesset and came up in the courts, actually, in the past few weeks, which the government often doesn't think about. And that's a great example of why Knesset supervision is needed. But at the same time, it's one of those things the government is trying to shrug off. And just for our uh, audience, I would say that uh, stalling the phones by the Shin Bet is basically taking your basic civil rights, the right for privacy. And it's just like, if I need to make it simple, it's just like uh, the Find My iPhone app, but as a governmental one. So they can track you wherever uh, you are at any time. And, and the, f- no, 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 the funny you. thing is that the Shabak don't want to do this. Right. So the Shabak have said time and time again, this is not one of our tasks and we don't want any part in this. And the reason they don't want any part in this is that this draws them into the public discourse, right? This just sort of focuses a lot of attention on the Shabak measures, Shabak tools, Shabak decision-making processes, which they don't want. The Shabak are much more comfortable doing their security-related job, you know, away from public attention, away from lights of the media. And the Shabak have made it very, very clear that they're very uncomfortable with this. It is also doubtful, and this is pending in the courts, in the Supreme Court, that they even have the authority to do this under the Shabak law, because Shabak operations are regulated in, in uh, Knesset law. And the law says that the Shabak has to you know, defend the security of Israel and defend its democracy. And that doesn't seem really uh, very strongly related to this pandemic. And the Shabak has anything but begged the government to just not engage them in this. And it also seems that the Ministry of Health has the ability to do this with one main caveat. So when this whole pandemic began, the health ministry called in a team of experts on technology and privacy and asked them to create an app similar to one I understand is being enacted in many countries. So this app was supposed to work voluntarily in the sense that you will download the app, you'll allow it to follow you, and you'll ask it right, to inform you if you've been in any place okay. of danger. Yeah. And they put a lot of effort in this, a lot of money into this. And what I hear from privacy regulation people is that they've actually done a very good job in integrating what we know as privacy and design into the app. So making sure, I mean, the assumption is that right, the majority of the people want to know if they've been by a COVID-19 um, patient. And it was assumed that, you know, the vast majority of people will download it, but will be able to turn it off if, you know, they're going to see their mistress or whomever. Yeah. And after all those efforts, it's just standing there. Nobody's using it because the government opted to go uh, in the Shabak path rather than in a civil path. So it's not a matter of bureaucracy. It's a matter of decision making. That's what you're saying. It's a matter of decision-making, and what a lot of people fear is that while the Shabbat doesn't want this, the government wants this, because, again, it's sort of a slippery slope the government wants to follow. Yeah, the government wants to get people used to the idea that they have this power, right. and maybe, you know, three years down the road, five years down the road, there will be some riots, some uprising, some uh, Black Lives Matter-style confrontations with the government. And, you know, one day the government will say, well, you know, this is really an emergency because people are riding in the streets. We need to restore order. You know, we have this tool here available and at the fingertips of the Shabak. So what people have their eyes on is not the pandemic. What people have their eyes on 
is fear of government abuse of these tools that are being developed now. So the government is trying to pass this law, and I think it's already went through yeah. uh, the Knesset on its first call. Now it needs to go technically to the uh, government committee. So this law was just passed, I think, yesterday or two days ago with a really small majority of 29 pro and 24 against the law in the right. Knesset, which is not even half of the 120 Knesset members, which shows right. the commitment of our Knesset members <laughs> <laughs> to this discussion. So what's next? I mean, what's going to be in Israel? The law was passed. You know what they say, the prophecy has been given to the fools. I'll try not to make a fool of myself. And, you know, so you can't run this recording against me a year from now and show me how wrong I was. We are recording today on July 8th, I must say, and it's not as a prophecy. I'm asking you, what do you think? Because eventually, I think that the last place for the people to go to is the Supreme Court, right? Well, you see, as a law professor, I'm worried of wearing down the Supreme Court too much. Right. And I'm not sure that's the only course of action we have, although it's definitely there. But, you know, the Supreme Court has become in Israel sometimes like this wonder um, potion that people used to give around 100 years ago in, in fair, right, to so you, the blind can see in a minute. And the Supreme Court can't solve all problems of Israeli society. So I'll get to the Supreme Court in a minute. But I do want to mention two courses of action before that. First of all, to be uh, more on the optimistic side, Israel has a very strong civil society. I think sometimes people don't appreciate how strong and the NGOs, civil society organizations in Israel have known in the past to make their voice heard. They know how to work at the Knesset committees. They know how to work the media. And my hope is, I mean, this is right. This is the law of the land now. But my hope is that through demonstrations that are happening these days and protests, and political work in the you know, Knesset hallways, they will be able to at the least make sure that this legislation is canceled, is reversed, the minute the need is not as pressing as some may argue it is right now. Because as I said earlier, you know, what fears me is the accumulation of these things, is that they right. add one to another, and you don't feel it step by step, but it's one day suddenly you're in a whole different place. So we need to remember to reverse these things as soon as possible. And even, I'd say, you know, a plan B, other than reversing, is just making sure it's not abused. So that is more the job of the Knesset itself. I said the first course of action is civil society. The second is just the Knesset members themselves. As you said, you know, rightfully, our Knesset often too easily submits and surrenders to government will. But we do have a rather strong opposition right now, at least not strong in numbers, but more uh, active than some of those of the earlier Knesset. And also, we do have within the government, I'd say more democratically conscious, aware ministers and Knesset members on the coalition side, people that do care more than maybe in some of our earlier governments about ideas of democracy and human rights and rule of law. So the other you know, focus of pressure now should be on the Knesset not to be a rubber stamp under this legislation as the government expects it to be, because the government said, if I uh, can remind, that we need to bring this to the Knesset within seven days, and the Knesset has three days to approve and not approve. And the law even says that the government regulations, emergency regulations, 
need to be approved in the plenum, in the forum of the 120 Knesset members, which sounds like, okay, that's good, you're bringing all the Knesset together, but as you very well know from walking the corridors of a Knesset, that's not where real debate happens. Real debate happens right. in the committees. Now, the Knesset, this is up to the Knesset to decide that it doesn't bring anything to vote in the plenum before there are serious debates in the committees. I can't say I'm very optimistic because you mentioned Yariv Levin is the speaker of the Knesset, the former minister of justice. And Yariv Levin is not known to be one very uh, you know, fiercely guarding rule of law. But, you know, I don't want to cast doubt on his uh, practice as speaker of the Knesset in his first weeks in the job. Maybe he'll, you know, grow into it. And anyhow, he's not the only one there, and the Knesset has a presidium, and uh, all the parties are represented there, or most of them. So I hope very much the Knesset will insist on fully playing its role, even under the sort of very narrow space given to it in this legislation. Right? The Supreme Court is there. The Supreme Court has passed some very serious tests, mostly successfully in the past few months, of balancing this very special situation, right, that we all know from everywhere around the world, with the need to remain democracy. But, hey, the Supreme Court, too, is changing. Along the years, we have had more and more, how should I cautiously put this, very conservative justices added to the bench. And while the president of the court, Justice Hayut herself, and some of the more senior justices are still strongly devoted, invested in the, you know, the larger project of Israeli constitutionalism, some of the younger ones aren't as much. And that sort of raises fears that they too may surrender to government, uh, yield power to the government in the coming years. And, you know, you, you can ask just as much from the Supreme Court in any given day. I think it was Justice Jackson, and maybe I'm wrong, of the United States that said after uh, Brown v. Board of Education that if the United States Supreme Court had to take five decisions like Brown v. Board of Education in the same year, there would be no more U.S. Supreme Court. It would be somehow toppled down. <laughs> um, so I often, as, as a jurist and someone who cares about the Supreme Court, beg people to try and solve things outside the court. But definitely the court is there. As I said, a petition is going to be filed in the next few days. And it will just say that uh, it's much easier to explain what's wrong here under U.S. constitutional law because this is basically a clear-cut due process issue, right? The government wants to violate human rights. Sometimes that needs to be done, no doubt about it. But they want to violate human rights without due parliamentary process. That's less clear of a legal tool under Israeli constitutional law. Our is more focused on rights than on limitations on, on government power. But it is, too. I mean, definitely we have a basic law, the Knesset, that says the Knesset is the legislator. We have precedent saying very well that the government cannot place itself uh, in the Knesset shoes. And I think at the least what the Supreme Court is going to do is raise some very challenging questions to the government attorneys in hope that it will bring the government to declare, for instance, that they're going to reverse this within six months, for instance to make it clear that this is a temporary, right now it's set for two years, so to make it clear that you know, they'll get rid of this as soon as possible. My guess is that in that case, if the government comes and says, look, we'll review this within four months, for instance, the court will say, you know, okay, we'll grant you that, we're not dismissing the petition, we're going to meet again in four months, 
and see what happens. If I were the general attorney and I would advise the government, I would A, say, look, it's better you didn't do this to begin with, but as you're paying me to give you advice, I would suggest that course of action. Otherwise, if they insist on, you know, on the full scheme, I think chances are good that the Supreme Court might strike this down. Well, I do think that, you know, the Supreme Court is in a way walking on eggs, you know, uh, in the past couple of years, because it was an easy target for the government and for the right wing in Israel, as a lot of Israel's laws are basically working against the basic laws. And that stands, you know, for the fact that Israel doesn't really have a constitution. Not that I'm sure that a constitution would have uh, solved all of the problems and the conflicts. But do you have anything to say about that? Well, I think the current president of the Supreme Court, Justice Hayut, has proven that she is, I wouldn't say fearless, but that she doesn't make a lot of political calculations. Now, of course, I, I can't dismiss, you know, that that's not just in the back of her mind, but somewhere in the front of her mind. You know, she's a, an intelligent, highly sophisticated woman. But she has, you know, taken the path laid down by Justice Barak 25 years ago, saying, you know, we'll say what is, what is right legally and the world, you know, will have to adjust. Or not adjust, but take the risk that uh, we play our role without fear of the consequences, of the political, so to speak, consequences. So it's true they've been walking on eggshells, but it's also true that so far they've, they've opted to do what I think is the right thing legally, and, and definitely what they think, is, which is more important, the right thing legally. You know, that said, the Supreme Court doesn't live in a bubble, and um, you said it very right, there are, there are constant attacks at the Supreme Court from government ministers, from the prime minister himself, from the prime minister's son, who has become like his alter ego yeah. on Facebook and is really shy of nothing is below him in attacking uh, the whole judicial system and the whole law enforcement system. Yes. Um, so in that sense, you know, these are very, very troubling things to see. They still haven't managed to generate an actual difference in the way the court behaves. But to say that, you know, I am sort of uh, relaxed and don't fear that moment is arriving, that wouldn't be true. I think that we have a lot more to discuss about uh, oh, the yeah. tension <laughs> between the Supreme Court and the Knesset and the government, but we leave that for another episode. I really want to thank you for your time and for joining us today and for enlightening us with everything that's going on with the Corona law in Israel. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. So thank you very much, Roy. Happy to. Thank you and thank you, listeners. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.